Okay, we're working our way through the book of Ezekiel. And we're coming towards the end of it. Uh, and we are in chapter 40. We're starting in chapter 40 tonight. Now, this is an exercise in your brain power how well you've been listening. <laughs> how well have you been listening? And have you figured this guy out yet? This guy, Ezekiel, he's different. There's nobody quite like him. The way he thinks, the way he does things. And I'm sure God chose him because he was different. And so we come to a rather famous passage here tonight. And the controversy over this passage has been raging for several hundred years because they're trying to figure out what it means. So it means you and I are going to try to figure it out tonight too. See if we can figure out what it means, what it's all about. Now, that should, you should have a little advantage because you've been looking at Ezekiel. And you know that he does things that whoever thought to do that. Remember he laid on one side for a year and looked at a tile with a picture drawn on it? <laughs> and he rolled over for 40 days on the other side. I mean, this guy does things that nobody could ever imagine. Cut all his hair off, chopped some of it up with a sword, threw some in the air, burned some. Nothing like the smell of burnt hair, right? Ezekiel's quite a fella. You don't know what he's going to do next. And uh, he's eating strange food. And he goes out one day and digs a hole and crawls through a hole under the wall. And everybody after a while is going, what's he doing now? What's he doing now? And they even come to him and say, why are you doing that? We can't figure out what you're doing. We're going to have another episode tonight. This time it's up to you to figure out what he's doing. It's up to you to try and come to some conclusion about what he's up to. Why is this happening? And there's nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. So we come to this very unique passage. It's pretty long. We are not going to read it all because it would take quite a long time. And uh, uh, it's more important to think about it than to read every verse. And you'll see why as we get started on it. But a lot of time has passed. In chapter 40, says, in the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that, the city was smitten. So he's been now captive in Babylon for 25 years. It's a long time has passed. And Jerusalem fell 14 years before this. And so the history of what he said was going to happen has all happened. They've all seen it. And uh, Jerusalem is no more. There's nothing left of it. And now he uh, is about to have another vision. And these are visions that he has. And we saw that one last week uh, where he's a valley full of bones, dry bones. The bones come together and he preaches to the bones. And now they're just dead corpses. And then he keeps preaching to the wind and then they stand up. And we have something that he wants to say to Israel. But it's a much larger interpretation when we look at resurrection. 
resurrection from the dead as far as uh, being dead in sin. And then we look at the resurrection that we will someday experience ourselves in a new body. And so as we can see, when he's showing us things, there's something bigger behind it. There's the immediate interpretation, but there's always something larger. It has to do with God, because God is much bigger than you think. You say, well, God is infinite. Can you got that in your mind? You ain't got that in your mind. Infinity is not in your mind. All right, you can't grasp it. You can't. If you could, you'd be God. <laughs> you can't grasp infinity. And so uh, well, the larger, more we look at God, the larger he is and the larger he grows. And now we're about to look at this vision that he had. Chapter 40 now, we'll read into it and start to think about it. In the 14th year after the city was smitten, the selfsame day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. And so once again, God reaches down, grabs him, and takes him for a ride. And the visions of God brought me to the land of Israel, set me on a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And so he takes him back to Jerusalem uh, in a vision. Lifts him up, sets him on a mountain on the north side of Jerusalem. Verse 3, he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And so, as he's there, he's coming to the temple, is where he's coming to. It's a vision, vision of the temple and he's going to start at the gate he goes to the gate and there in the gate he meets a man who looks like brass there's a man of brass who's the man of brass well we look over in Revelations chapter 1 Right in the beginning of Revelations, uh, as soon as John begins his uh, vision, he's also seeing a vision. In verse number 13 of chapter 1, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to a foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And so he sees, that's of course, Jesus. Son of man, he calls him Jesus. He sees Jesus and his skin. But he can see his feet, he's covered with golden clothes, uh, but his feet, he said, look like brass. He's like highly polished, shiny brass. And so back here, Ezekiel, he says, I saw this man who looked like brass. And so we think that's probably Jesus. And that's a pretty good conclusion that it's Jesus. And let's go back now and see uh, what he's doing. It says he has a line of flax in his hand, a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And so 
he has a string in his hand and he has a, a reed of some kind, a long stick, and it's for measuring. And so the string will be stretched out on a line and you'll measure things with the stick. Verse 4. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears. Set thy heart upon all that I will show thee. For the intent that I might show them unto thee, thou art brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. So pay attention. I'm about to show you a whole bunch of things. And you are to report these things back to your people. And you're going to uh, you're going to be busy. Here we go. Verse 5. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about, and in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by a cubit and a hand breadth. So that he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. And so it's about ten and a half feet, and he's measuring with this reed, or it's a measuring stick. And he starts to measure, and he's measuring the wall. And so, in the temple, we have a basic structure. This would be the north and the south. And there's a gate here. And a wall. And the whole thing is surrounded by a wall. There's a gate on the south and a gate on the north. And he starts to measure the wall first. All right, let's go on, see what else he's doing. Verse 6 He came to the gate, which looked toward the east. And went up the stairs thereof, measured the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. And so he starts measuring the opening here, the gates, and he measures them on the inside and the outside. And then, pay attention, verse 7. Every little chamber uh, was one reed Long, one reed broad, and behold, the little chambers were five cubits. Threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate within was one reed. And he also measured the porch of the gate within one reed. So, along these walls here, there's little rooms. A whole series of little rooms along the wall here. And along the wall here, these little chambers, little rooms all along the wall. He's measuring these walls, these little <laughs> chambers along the wall. Starts to measure those. And then he measures the porch. And uh, inside the gate would be sort of, I'd say, a walkway uh, with a roof over it. And there's a walkway and call it a porch. It's different from what is in the temple usually because in the in the temple this would be all open air would be an open area all right but he says there's a porch there's a walkway you go through the gate and there's a walkway with a roof over your head that leads into the temple let's go on a little further see what else we see 
Verse 10, the little chambers of the gate eastward were three on this side, three on that side, three were one measure, the pulse had one measure on this side and on that side. He measured the breadth of the entry of the gate, 10 cubits, the length of the gate, 13 cubits. The space was also before the little chambers were one cubit on one side, space a cubit on this side, the little chambers were six cubits on that side, six cubits on that side. Getting this all? Not at all. How'd you like to be Ezekiel? Wait a minute, he's writing all these little measurements down. And he's only getting started. Look down at verse 16. And there were narrow windows to the little chambers, to their posts within the gate round about, likewise to the arches. The windows were round about inward, and upon each post were palm trees. And so he also measures on each one of these little rooms a window. And there's windows in every little room that goes around all these little chambers. They all have windows along. And he's measuring the windows. Now, it's going to go on and on. He's going to measure the front of the gate. He's going to measure the back of the gate. He's going to measure the space inside, space outside. The measurements are here and there, all over the place. Look down at, at verse 40. Verse 44. And without the inner gate were the chambers of the singers of the inner court, which was on the side of the north gate. Their prospect was toward the south, the one side of the east gate having prospect towards the north. So uh, there's along here special little rooms, and those are set for the singers. And, these are, and they can see through, they got also a window in there. They can see down across the south. And of course, in here is the altar. Along there, there's tables where they lay the sacrifices and so forth. And then you know that there's a curtain there called, there's an inner chamber. And then there's a holy place, holy of holies, sometimes called. That's a general structure. Of the temple. So he's going to measure it in chapter 40. He keeps measuring it in 41. And you could go on and on. He's measuring the doors. He's measuring the posts. He's measuring the space between it. Chapter 42, he's still measuring. He's still measuring. The all sorts of the doors and the chambers on one side, and then he starts to measure uh, the place where they put the garments and where they make the sacrifices, and he's measuring and he's measuring and he's measuring, and then uh, we come to chapter 43, and we're going to stop before we read 43. So, measurements. Exciting stuff, right? Man, this is great. What is he doing? What is Ezekiel doing? He's doing what God, exactly what God said. God said, lay on your side for a year and two months, and he laid on his side. God said, cut your hair off, and he cut his hair off. Now God says, we're, we're going to measure this place, and you take measurements. And so faithfully, he's recording one chapter, two chapter, three chapter. He's not done. He's going to keep measuring as they go along. And he's going to measure and measure and measure 
and measure. Now, what is he doing anyway? What's he doing? Well, he's measuring the temple. And this is uh, the temple. It's the vision of the temple. He's taking him in a vision to Jerusalem, and he's walking through. Jesus himself is walking through here and doing the measuring, and Ezekiel's recording all the measurement. So, everybody, everybody who's interpreting the Bible, trying to figure it out, everybody's trying to figure out what is this temple? Well, in history, there were three temples. Solomon would build the first temple, a permanent structure. Now, before that, Moses made a tent. And the original, called the tabernacle, the tent, uh, was made by Moses. Okay? Solomon would build the first permanent structure. David wanted to do it, and God said, you're a man of war, you got blood on your hands, I don't want you building my house, but your son can. And so uh, Solomon built the first permanent structure, and so we call it Solomon's Temple. And it lasted a long time through all the kings, and that's the temple that Nebuchadnezzar, now 14 years before, uh, laid in ashes and ruin. There's nothing left of it. The next temple, we're going to put Ezra's name on it. Uh, Ezra leads the people back to the land, and a couple of other fellows, Nehemiah is in on it too. They go back to the land and they start a temple. And if you recall, we've studied this on various occasions. Uh, when they built that temple, Ezra was there and they laid the foundation for the new temple. And the old men who were there, who were in their 80s and 90s, cried like babies. <laughs> oh. When they started, they laid that foundation. And they said, what are you crying about? We're building a temple. They said, you should have seen the other one. And this one isn't much. It's kind of small. And that's why they cried. They remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And this was a very small restarting. Though Ezra would build that temple and help to get it going again, reestablish it. But there's another name that comes into that to Herod. King Herod, although he wasn't even Jewish, was the ruler of Israel at the time of Jesus. And he invested 30 years of money and time into a building project uh, to rebuild the temple and because he was a driving force behind it and the money behind it, we call it Herod's Temple. And so Herod's Temple was pretty spectacular. It was 27 acres. Wow. Right? Now, that's not all a building. Uh, but when you read about Jesus going in the temple and what happens there, you're learning about the temple. You learn that they have carved steps into the mountain. 
because the temple is on a side hill. It's on Mount Zion. It's on a side hill. And so they actually chipped out flat places, carved steps right into the mountain, did a wonderful job. And Herod made that a show place. And people from all over the world came to see Herod's temple. So we got three temples there. Solomon's. And we don't know all the dimensions of Solomon, but we know some of them. We know some things about it. The Bible tells us a little. We know that Ezra's was small, insignificant compared to Solomon's. And we know that Herod's was a sprawling complex, pretty large, and they spent many years and lots of money on it. And so we look at the dimensions that we have from Ezekiel's vision. And everybody said, well, which ones he measure? Is he measuring Solomon? Probably not Ezra's, because that wasn't much. Herod's, is he measuring Herod's? Nope. The dimensions are wrong. They don't fit any of those. Whatever he's been measuring here for three and a half chapters, is not these. And so these are the historical temples, and you think, well, what's he measuring? He's back in Jerusalem measuring, and he's not, none of these match. They don't match. And that's been a question that everybody's trying to figure out. What is this thing that he's measuring every little Every little measurement from the size of the doors to the size of the windows, how far apart the posts are, how big the altar is, everything has been measured here. And none of these things match what's happened. Solomon's temple didn't have all these little chambers in it. All right? Herod's temple did, but Herod's temple doesn't match either because Herod's temple had several gates going all into it uh, that he, because of 27 acres, you need a lot of, a lot of open space, a lot of gates. All right? And so uh, the porch is being inside the gate. All right? It wasn't in Herod's temple. So here's the question everybody asks, and we're going to ask you, what is this temple? Is there another possibility? Well, there is another possibility. Um, Daniel, let's take a look over to Daniel. Daniel. Ezekiel and Daniel's the next book. Daniel chapter 8. Now, Daniel's having a vision also about the temple. But something very unique in his vision that nobody's seen before except for Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13. I heard one saint speaking, another saint said to that certain saint which spake, How long shall a vision be concerning the daily sacrifice? And the transgression of desolation to both give the sanctuary and the host to be trotted underfoot. And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And so Daniel says, Something happened to the sanctuary. It was trodden underfoot. 
I saw somebody treating it in a very bad way over chapter 11 in Daniel, chapter 11. We're talking about a character now that Daniel mentions, verse 45. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So he's going to set himself up at where the temple is. Who they're talking about is Antichrist. He says, Antichrist goes in to the temple, sets himself up there, destroys whatever is there, and makes himself the center of the temple. All right, take a look at Matthew 24. Jesus is going to tell us the same thing. Jesus always clears things up. You can always trust him to clear things up. Matthew 24 Verse number 15. He's talking, they asked him, uh, how's the end of the world? Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, what shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming of the end of the world? In verse 15, when you see therefore the abomination of, of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place whosoever read him let him understand or in other words he said Daniel saw an abominable character standing in the temple that was the antichrist now Jesus says when you see the antichrist stand in the temple then don't forget now, we said this was going to happen. Now, we'll get another good look at this. Thessalonians, teaser together. First and second Thessalonians. We want second Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, we're talking about the end of time. Paul's telling them. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin may be revealed, the son of perdition, Antichrist, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul clears it up. He says, the Antichrist goes into the temple in Jerusalem and says, this is my place now. I'm God. You can worship me. I'm God. So, question is, where is the temple now? There isn't any temple now. Temple ever since the Romans destroyed Herod's temple, there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem. So a lot of people say when we read these passages, Daniel says Antichrist is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus said when you see what Daniel said in Jerusalem, then you'll know. And Paul said here he is, he's going to go in there and claim to be God. He said when you see that, you're going to be in the temple. 
So whether they're right or whether they're wrong is not the question. People say, in order for that to happen, there has to be a temple built in Jerusalem. And that the Jews will someday rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the temple. Then when Antichrist comes, the temple will be there and he'll take it over. Is that the temple? that we're talking about. Is that the temple? I don't know. We don't know anything about it. It doesn't exist. Nobody's ever seen it yet. Is that, do you think, what he's talking about? So we have three historical temples and none of Ezekiel's measurements match. We got another one that we believe, we're not sure, but that we believe is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem by the Jews, that the Antichrist comes and stands in that temple. Is that the one he's talking about? Well, we've got to get to the bottom of this. So let's, let's take a look now. Chapter 43 of Ezekiel. I want to know what he's measuring. What is this building? It's a reasonable question to say, what is he doing? Why is he measuring? All right. Here we go, chapter 43. Now, this is kind of exciting, so hang on to your hat. Afterwards, he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looks towards the east. So, he comes back to this gate right here. Now, that's an important thought. Do you remember what happened the last time Ezekiel was standing at that gate? All right, let's see what it is. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision I saw when I came to destroy the city, the visions like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. He mentions two former visions, the very first one in the book of Ezekiel. Remember that he sees uh, uh, these creatures with great big huge wheels moving up and their, fit, their wings touch each other and they don't even turn when they move because there are wheels within a wheel. They go this way, they can go that way and they know exactly what to do and then they stop and he looks up and there's God up there. That God that he saw by the river Kibar when he's first captive is now coming here. I see him here by the eastern gate. Now he said, when I came to destroy the city, the other vision that we had, now remember when he was peeking, crawling through the wall, and he saw them burning incense inside there, and there was 25 men standing by the curtain with their back to God, and uh, there were prostitutes out here, and uh, when he saw all that, remember what happened, God said, I can't stay here. And God pulled himself out of the holy place, came up, over the gate, hovered here, hovered over the gate, went up to the Mount of Olives, hovered over the Mount of Olives on the north side, and that's very likely where Ezekiel started, the Mount of Olives on the north side. And then God left. 
So he said, I saw God by the river Kibar when I was captive for the first time in Babylon. And I saw God leave the holy place here. And now, here he is again, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is towards the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. God came back. He's seeing God come back. And so he comes through the gate, comes into the holy place, and he takes Ezekiel there so he can see. And now Ezekiel's in the holy place. What happens if you're there? You die. You die. You're not supposed to go in the holy of holies. They said they put bells on the high priest's robe and a rope around his leg. And if he went in there and he wasn't right with God, he's dead. Now they pull him out with a rope when the bell stopped ringing. Okay? And so, but Ezekiel's in there. He's in the holy place. Think about that now. Think about that real hard. He's in the holy place. Now it's starting to make sense. Verse 6. I heard him speaking unto me out of the house. The man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings nor their whoredom nor their carcasses of their kings in their high place. They're setting up their threshold on my thresholds and their post by my post. Wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by their abominations they have committed. Wherefore, I have consumed them in my anger. He said, they did everything you could think of against me. And isn't it true that in this world, everybody, there are people just anything, believe anything except for God. They believe in anything. When I start for work, there's a, there's a station. I listen to 30 seconds of it, then I mock it and turn it off. Because <laughs> all these weirdos call up and they'll say, well, I communicated with the spirit of Pharaoh. You know, or I saw a ghost to hear. And... <laughs> I think it was Monday morning, I turned it on, and this lady says, I was in my car out in the woods, and I put it in gear, and it wouldn't go. And I tried it again, and put it in gear, it wouldn't go. And the third time, and I knew that Bigfoot was under my car, hanging on to it. <laughs> I'm thinking, if he's under your car, he's awful thin. Or a Bigfoot, all right? And he finally let go. And I thought, what are you people you believe anything, any stupid, ignorant thing you'll accept. But when it says, here's Jesus Christ, I don't want that. I reject that. And that's what God's saying to him. He says, believe anything. Believe anything. Verse 9. Let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me. And I will dwell in the midst of them Forever. Now we got a word we got to take. Forever. Forever. Now, thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. 
and let them measure the pattern. Ah, now we got something. Now we're trying to figure out what he's thinking about. What's this temple that he's measuring? And God says to him, I'm going to live there forever. Well, it's not that one that the Antichrist is in. It's not that one. Can't be that one. He just changed that. Um, so, just to throw out something for you, Revelation 21. That's how you use the Bible to explain the Bible. Revelation 21, almost the last chapter of Revelations. And John is looking at the city, the holy city that came down out of heaven. It says in verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So, is it the future temple? No, because in heaven there's no temple. There's no temple in heaven. So why is he measuring this temple? What is that temple? Um, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, get ready. It'll change your thinking. Ready? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood entry once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes and heifers sprinkling of unclean sacrifice to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Son offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right. Now there's a temple. Didn't make it with hands. So it ain't made with hands. Well, why are we measuring them? You measure so you can make something with your hands. He said, no, let's think about this. Let's think about this. There is now a temple, he said, that's not made with hands. It's changed entirely. It's entirely different. So why did we measure every little thing from the windows to the doorpost to everything? Why do we do that? Hebrews chapter 8, couple, just a little bit back. Verse 5. 
who served to the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mouth. There's the word. The word is pattern. There's a pattern. So Moses, when he builds the first tent for God, the worship of God, he says, I gave you a pattern, follow the pattern. Now what's Ezekiel doing? Well, he's, God says to him, you tell him we got a pattern. We're going to have a pattern. Pattern for what? Pattern for a tabernacle made without hands. Which would be the church of Jesus Christ. How come Ezekiel can stand in the holy place? Because Jesus Christ purchased the way. How do you know he did? Because when he died on the cross, what happened? The temple veil ripped in half and exposed the holy place. So you could go in. All right, Ezekiel's in there. How's he in there? How can he stay in there? Because it's something entirely different. It's what? It's the church of Jesus Christ is built without hands. It's a building that God built. Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so when he sees all these things, it's a heavenly picture. You're supposed to follow the pattern. It's not the measurements that matter. It's a pattern that matters. It's a pattern. So what's the pattern? Well, let's take a look at it. There's gates. Church of Jesus Christ has a sign over the door. If it's the real church of Jesus Christ, anybody can come in. Whosoever will may come. There may be churches that you would go to and not feel at home. But the real church of Jesus Christ has open gates and more than one and saying, welcome, come. Whosoever will may come. That's the gates. There's a porch inside that wasn't in the other temples. Why? Because it's a nice, beautiful road. Come in. It invites you to come. It's, it's an open way. As soon as you go through the gate, it leads you forward. All right. Here's all these little tiny chambers. What are those? Those are the churches. Every church is kind of a little chamber inside of the larger church, isn't it? That's what we are. We're a little chamber inside of the larger church. And there's churches, the, the, the temple is full of these little churches. And what's significant about them? They all got windows. Every one of them's got a window. Why? To let the light out. <laughs> you think windows are let light in they are in your house right but in the church the light got to go out because the light's in here and so there's windows on a church let the light go out all right and that's a pattern for the church there's an altar up here all right and where's the altar it's where we get rid of sin and inside the holy place there's a little altar right there for incense there's a table over here with 12 loaves of bread. 
And then there's a candlestick over here, uh, which is light. Remember I said to you a few weeks ago, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There's a light there. Uh, I am the bread of life. There's a light there. And we turn to God and we pray. And that's incense is prayer. So what's the pattern for church? We invite the door, whosoever will may come, and we make sure that as they come in, there's a welcoming feeling, an opening door, a porch that invites you to continue in. Every one of these little churches has a role to let the light out and to let it shine. And therefore, what's church all about? It's opening the invitation, inviting people to come, asking them and, and making it so they want to come. And we're going to come in and we're going to eat of the bread of life. We're going to have the light of God in our heart and we're going to pray. That's the pattern. Everyone since Moses started is the same pattern. Church has lives by the same pattern. What do you do? You come here. You approach God. When you come to church, you're going to approach God. You don't come for each other. You come to approach God. All right, and we are invited, open doors to come. We approach God, and we feed on the bread of life when we come, and the light is poured into us. What does it say about Jesus? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus Christ came to be that light, and in church... He pours that light into you, and we pour our prayers up. And then just for the pure pleasure of it, notice there's singers, always singers, in the house of God. There was a time in church history when they made music illegal. Sound familiar? Don't sing in church. They made, they made music illegal. It, it has always been a part of the pattern that we come and sing. That's always been a part of the pattern. That's included in the pattern. And so we have worship when we come. We sing and have worship. And we pray. And we feed on God's word. And the light comes into us. And we go into the holy place. That's the pattern that God has set up. And so it's not the fact of what he measured. It's just the fact that he was measuring. Because there's a pattern. It doesn't matter what temple this is. It isn't any temple. It's the temple built without hands is what it is. Church of Jesus Christ. How do you know? Because Jesus said to Ezekiel, I'm going to live there forever with them. And the church of Jesus Christ was founded by Jesus when he was here on earth. And ever since then, he's been living with us. Ever since. And it's our job to follow the pattern. And the pattern is laid out not the, that we follow every little thing. You could build this. You could build this from Ezekiel's plans. Although you don't have exactly everything you got quite a lot you could lay out and some people have done that they've actually built the whole thing and sit there and look at it and say huh wonder what that is it's not that hard he said 
Ezekiel said, or God said to Ezekiel, it's a pattern I want. I want you to show them the pattern. Why? Because here's how we approach God. Here's what we do. And that's never changed from when Moses started in the tabernacle way back there in the wilderness to he shall be right here. We come in and we worship God and we sing and we pray and we learn. We feed on the bread of life. And so he's showing us a temple built without hands, telling us now you follow that pattern. That's what this is. That's what this is. And so Ezekiel opening up the doors to the future and saying, we're not going to change certain things. It's going to be different. Not going to be follow all the rules of the temple. It's going to be different. But there are patterns that we're going to keep. We're going to make sure we always have those as part of what we do. The light comes in and we shine it out. We approach God. And uh, there it is, uh, centered around the blood of Christ, the altar. Of course, the altar was the cross. Right? The blood of Christ was shed on that altar. We sing a song, Dear Dying Lamb, there is a fountain filled with blood. Dear Dying Lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Man. Are you in for that? What a day when we are gathered with him. He said, you don't need any temple. I'm here. <laughs> you don't even need the sun anymore. I'm here. I'm here. And he said... There'll come a day when you and I don't sin anymore. Wow. Till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. What did he tell them? He said, they got to get rid of that sin. Ezekiel, you tell them. There's the pattern. Get that stuff out of your life. Pull it up and root it out and get it out of there. And then I'll come and live with them. And that will be the happy day that's in the future. So Ezekiel got to look at the church. And he's told us there's a pattern to follow. Let's do it. Let's follow the pattern. Let's not redefine the church. do not need redefining. It's well defined. And here Ezekiel in his little measurements. It's not the, how big the window is. It's that there's a window. Right? What's the wall for? Because the, the church is separate from the world. We are not the world. Somebody came here once and they said to me, I like East Shelby Church because it's not really a church. I didn't say nothing to him, but it, he, he didn't last long because he found out it was a church. He thought, no, it's not a church, so I think I can go. It didn't take him long to find out it is a church. We're following a pattern. Same pattern that God, we were going to approach him, meet him, pray to him. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel's pattern is set up well. Now, the next section gets really good. And we'll take that up next week.